All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Monkovil Suchdev. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm an interventional endoscopist in Arizona, and today I have an opportunity and the privilege to interview a really good friend of mine, Dr. Rahul Panala, out of the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. Um, hi, Rahul. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good, good, good. So I know uh, Rahul because basically he and I uh, did our interventional endoscopy fellowships in the same era. I think we both uh, started in 2009 and uh, graduated in 2010. And we both ended up in Phoenix and through some collaboration over the last 13 years now, uh, we've worked on journal clubs together. Um, we've had presentations and actually have had the most recent pleasure of working on the same committee at Fight. Um, and, you know, I've gotten to know him over the years, and I thought that Dr. Pinal would be, would be a great guy just to kind of talk about some new advances and, and uh, situations that are presenting themselves in interventional endoscopy. So before we start talking to him, um, just a brief introduction. He's a professor of medicine and consultant gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Uh, he trained at Gandhi Medical College in Hyderabad, India, and then did a master's of public health at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. After that, he did his internal medicine residency at Bridgeport Hospital, which is affiliated with Yale, and then the GI Fellowship Mayo Clinic Rochester. So ultimately, he decided to get some warm weather and then moved down. Well, after that, he did advanced hearings <laughs> and then decided to get dry and warm weather by coming to Arizona. And he's been there for the last 12 to 13 years. Uh, he is the, currently the director of the Pancreatic Clinic uh, and recently started the endoscopic bariatric program at Mayo. And that's actually something we'll be talking about. And research interests include pancreatic ability disorders, endoscopic bariatric therapies. And he has a strong, strong interest in medical innovations and uh, education as well. So, Rahul, thank you for, you know, taking time out of your night. Uh, we're doing this a little bit later. Uh, so it's kind of when the kids are all asleep. So that's always fun. And I uh, really appreciate you spending some time with me tonight. Absolutely. Now, it's a great pleasure and uh, looking forward to it. So uh, one thing I wanted to, uh, I always like to ask people um, who I'm uh, working with on these podcasts, you know, I, I kind of want to understand from you, wh what got you to where you are today, you know? So um, first, I guess, you know, we talked a little bit about your training and everything, but kind of, let's talk about your, your childhood and your family and, and that sort of stuff. So you grew up in India. Um, what made you become a doctor? What was the situation like? And, and how did you end up in the state? So maybe we could start with that. Yeah, no, thanks. Um, usually don't get asked about the personal story. So I think the personal story goes a long way. Yeah, I grew up in South India in uh, Hyderabad, which is uh, considered one of the tech hubs. In those days, it was a sleepy old uh, small town. Um, and, um, you know, um, how I became a doctor, I think, is because my dad wanted me to become something else. It usually goes against the story. You know, usually it's like, um, uh, you know, you want your uh, kid to become a doctor in India. And uh, so mine is a little bit opposite, but I really enjoyed medicine from the beginning. Um, I went to medical school in, in um, Hyderabad and then eventually came to the States. Um, the decision to move to the States, I think, was primarily driven by a desire for better education, I guess, and uh, decided to train. Uh, so that, you know, kind of um, had a really good time in Amherst, uh, trained in epidemiology and uh, 
slowly from there sort of uh, went on to, you know, one thing after another. Yeah. So, so what made you specifically after, you know, doing the epidemiology and then doing medicine residency and what kind of drew you towards gastroenterology and, and specifically interventional endoscopy? Yeah. You know, in medical school, I always wanted to do gastrointestinal surgery. It didn't really work out. I didn't want to spend the long hours, I guess. <laughs> but um, in internal medicine, I was pretty sure. Um, you know, I really like procedures. I really like, um, and for some reason, I was really drawn to the pancreas, even in uh, residency. So I did some research on uh, pancreas, and that kind of got me. I did work with a surgeon in my residency at Yale. Um, internship and my residency years. So uh, Dr. Maudlin was a gastrointestinal surgeon. So I think that had an influence on me. Um, and uh, that primarily drew me to interventional endoscopy. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was uh, talking in one of the podcasts about kind of my specific journey. And it, it's always, there's always somebody who kind of triggers that, you know, kind of um, curiosity in you or, or at least that desire. And I think, you know, it, it, it's kind of what points all of us into our different directions throughout our careers. Yeah. Um, so you finished over at Virginia Mason. You trained with some amazing people up there, you know, Dr. Kozarek and his team. And I believe Andy was there at that time, uh, Andy yeah. Ross. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. you trained with some amazing people. And what kind of got you back or got you back towards Mayo Clinic or got you into uh, going into academics as opposed to, you know, traditional practice or something along those lines? Yeah, now, you know, these things happen. Um, I had trained up at Mayo Rochester, I was very used to and, and really sort of uh, had embraced the, you know, the working environment and the culture and, and, and that at Mayo. So primarily it was the culture and the ability to work at Mayo in that sort of uh, culture that drew me back to Mayo. And, you know... Um, so that's that's primarily what brought me here. Um, I'd always sort of with you know with therapeutic endoscopy, one could go into multiple different areas, but traditionally academia has been the sort of the go-to for you know doing complex cases, things like that. Um, I think it was primarily the 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 draw of the institution and the environment that I was used to, mm -hmm. and that drew me. In. And it's been a it's been a really really amazing journey. So, so, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, I mean, it's, it's a great place. I spent one year, I had one year there as a transplant fellow and, uh, it's, it's a different world. Um, but honestly, the, at least my experience was that the number of resources that you have, you really don't see those at most places around the United States, you know, uh, most real, real life. And I, I hate that term, but I use it from time to time you're you're getting to do some things and get access to some resources that a lot of places don't. So it really makes it, you know, especially in the eventual world, enjoyable. Um, so when you started your job, kind of what were your, like, personal goals? And now that you're, and you're going to sound old when I say this, your mid-career, <laughs> uh, what are your goals now and how have they changed? You know, when you, what do you see as in terms of evolution of your career uh, from when you first started to now and moving forward? Yeah, it's a great question. I think my first time when you come out of fellowship and you start in an academic job, you really, there's a lot of stuff coming at you. It's like drinking off a fire hose. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard to find your way around it. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I came in as the, um, you know, as a pancreas uh, um, 
physician and a therapeutic endoscopist. So the first few years were primarily sort of building the practice, really getting my research off the ground, finding sort of that niche. Um, and slowly that has evolved. I think there are a few transitions that have happened. I think we're going to be talking about, you know, endobariatrics on this podcast later. So that was something new. It did exist did fellowship. I was always sort of interested, even in my general GI fellowship, I was interested in obesity and, you know, um, neuroendocrine uh, and and, uh, pancreaticoendocrine, sort of that axis. Uh, But there were no procedures, right? Um, It was uh, was a physiology and pathophysiology kind of thing. Um, That was, but primarily it's been on the pancreas and pancreatic fat assessment and and slowly has evolved into endobariatrics, which I do now. Um, right now, I spend a fair amount of time um, doing sort of really being focused on medical innovation, both innovation in terms of devices, but also in terms of practice, in terms of uh, how one approaches. Mm-hmm. And in terms sort of transitioning into it, we're definitely mid-career. I think it's uh, fair to acknowledge. Uh, I think it's uh, it's really sort of building the foundation, but really helping and mentor, um, build programmatic sort of programs, things, and and really helping um, folks who you know my colleagues who are starting mentoring them. Uh, we have two advanced endoscopy fellows, so we spend a lot of time in education. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I spend a lot of time. Um, push, you know, focusing on, um, I guess, innovation in multiple aspects. Yeah. So I, I guess that's actually a good transition into our, our next kind of talking point is, um, you know, the bariatric program. So, um, you know, endobariatrics, from my experience, um, great procedures, uh, new procedures, uh, very hard to get a program off the ground because of various challenges, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, so kind of... I guess if we go back to when you started your program, um, A, the decision to start the program, how did that come about? Obviously, you had an interest in the topic matter, but how did you go about setting up a program? And um, what were some of the challenges you faced? So I, I think let's start with just how you kind of set it up and how you got your ducks lined in a row, so to speak, to kind of get this off the ground. Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that it, it was not a, you know, straightforward, uh, linear process. There were a lot of, uh, um, you know, starts and stops, like with any, anything that starts from scratch. I think the, the, the decision to sort of get that started was a fairly straightforward one. I think, um, you know, it was very clear, you know, fortunately for me, Mayo Clinic Rochester and the group up there have been pioneers in this space. Mm-hmm. And so I had someone and, and, the people that I know, trust, and 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 respect. So it really they had done some pioneering work. So um, you know the, the utility and the need for such a program like that, especially here in Phoenix, where um, nothing like that really existed. We had the opportunity to really um, set something up. So the the ability to or the need to set it up really was was fairly straightforward. Now, there are obviously a lot of challenges and things like that that we can get into. At that point, which was about three to four years ago, um, really balloons were the only (laughs) 
most commonly available things news now, even probably about four years ago, four or five years ago. So the balloons were really the only um, widely available. ESG had not become that popular. Very few people were doing ESG. We had just gotten the suturing device. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was very early on, and there was a lot of emphasis in the institution on building a overall weight and wellness sort of program and, and really... Uh, focusing on various other aspects, including bariatric surgery, and rightfully so. So it was. Uh, it took a lot of groundwork to sort of get that up and running, mm-hmm. and, and 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 put it out there, and and you know because these are not procedures covered by insurance. There was a lot of groundwork to be done to set up processes and things like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I if I go back to my experience, I, I you know, I, uh, I I went for ESG training um, in 2019, uh, about two months before the pandemic hit, and I was pretty inspired myself. And I and, and I went to my high school administration, and I, you know, there was a guy who's not there anymore, but you know, I sat down with him, I explained what it to what I learned. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I, I know that there are bariatric surgeons that come here and I know that this facility participates in medical management of weight loss and you have the counselors and the psychiatrists and, you know, the whole setup was there for the surgical portion. And, um, you know, I said, I'd love to get this started. And I asked, you know, like, how can we price this? Obviously insurances aren't covering it and, uh, we need to figure out what can we quote to patients, you know, as a price. And he waited a few weeks, um, probably about a month, so a month before the pandemic happened. Uh, his response to me was, well, you know, we went and did some research, and you're not employed by the system, you're contracted, so we can't share pricing with you. So, so that was the first barrier, because I wasn't an employee of that hospital system. And then the second thing was that the bariatric surgeons, who are a little bit um, older generation at that time, uh, didn't want anybody doing their procedures, so they kind of forbade this administrator from allowing me or any other gastroenterologist to use the resources to get the patients in the system and things like that. So there was a lot of blockades in that regard. Did you experience anything like that in your situation? I know, as you mentioned, Rochester had paved the way, but in Arizona or, or even in Jacksonville, are you aware of any, and obviously we're not trying to point fingers at people, but just. No, no, actually for me. Yeah. No, I think I think it's important to discuss, but it's also important to discuss for somebody starting a program mm-hmm. of how to go about it. And and the two things I say: one is, um, you know, obesity is a chronic disease and needs a spectrum of treatments. So and and needs sequential treatment. Fortunately, at Mayo, um, you know, I'm blessed that way that uh, people truly are open and truly are sort of you know, want to sort of push the envelope in terms of offering what's needed. So, um, you know, once sort of the the surgeons really, once I sat down with them, went over what the procedures were and what the population we were trying to address and, and how we could help um, overall the patient populations who don't qualify for surgery or who don't want surgery or a whole host of other things, really... Um, were my biggest supporters, actually. Yeah. Um, so having their sort of back for me was it was a huge boost. Uh, and so I probably had a little bit of a 
You know, it was not easy because I think um, any new service line, any new technique, any new procedure should rightfully be viewed with, you know, skepticism right off the bat. Um, and at that time, we didn't have randomized data. We didn't have the merit trial. And and so, but there was a lot of data on balloons. And so it was, it, it took time, like any of these things take time. But I think once they understood the value of it, the other aspect of it that I would really encourage uh, folks who want to start a program is to really sit down and have a conversation and and talk not just about this being an endobariatric program that is designed to do primary treatment of obesity, but also really to focus on weight regain after bypass, dealing with surgical complications, you know, de- developing an expertise in management, endoscopic management of complex into, you know, bariatric surgical issues like sleeve stenosis and things and complex stenosis. So that, that then it, it creates a, a, an environment of trust, an environment of sort of mutual, um, you know, uh, collaboration to help take care of complex problems. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Now, and I'm envious to that to a degree also on that because I do think that, you know, I, I don't regret my personal decision to go into private practice, um, but what I would say is that it does make it harder in a private world to do innovative things like bariatric programs or ESD programs or something along those lines because you have different agendas, whether it's a surgical agenda, a hospital agenda, a gastroenterologist agenda, and they're not always unfortunately aligned. Whereas, you know, I think one of the things in you know at Mayo Clinic they always talk about you know, the Mayo brothers having a statement that the only interest to be considered is that of the patients. And I do think that when you're part of the same um, <clears throat> umbrella and everyone's aligned, it, it's easier, you know, whether that be Mayo or an Ochsner clinic, whatever the situation might be. I feel like, you know, so that does give me a little bit of envy from my perspective as, you know, a private practice guy. But, you know, I, and, and it, it's refreshing to hear that, you know, you still have that ability to collaborate with your colleagues because you all have the same kind of end to target at might. Not, not, yeah, I think, you know, I think that, want it, but, you know. No, I think the challenges are going to be different for every practice environment. And I think mm-hmm. that um, there, there are pros and cons of every practice environment. And then I think that one has to really navigate those challenges and, and um, just be patient, just be, you know, if you really want to start it, but know that patients really want it. Their, you know, obesity is is uh, is widely prevalent, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, we'll have insurance coverage. Um, and and uh, but I think the point has to be made that it is a program. It is not one person doing the procedure. So it right. has to be set up. It has to. All the building blocks have to be there, and that's what would make you know, would, would get your back, you know, the best outcome. So, so let me ask you a little bit about the future of endobariatrics. You know, I, I spoke to a prominent um, uh, endobariatrician out in uh, the Florida area, and uh, I asked him, I said, how's your, how are your procedures going? Uh, your, your ESG program, your TOR program, all those type of things. And he said, you know, honestly, I'm doing less of them than I did maybe five years ago or three years ago, whatever the time frame was. And I asked him why, and he said, you know, pharmacotherapy, with the semi-glutide medications and, and the injectables that are out there now are very effective. Do you, how do you see that? Because there was some articles that actually came out, I think, today, 
talking about these being almost as good as weight loss uh, procedures. And so what's your opinion on that? And what do you see as the future of this field? Yeah, the way I actually see it is that we need all the tools that we can get. And for the amount of patients that are out there, the different needs of different patients, I think we need all the tools. I think those drugs are incredibly effective. Um, unfortunately, they're also incredibly expensive. Oh, yeah. And, and, and uh, the, the real question of how long to treat and when to stop and, and weight regain after stopping, I think those we need to learn more about that. But um, where I see the real benefit is that it gives patients multiple choices and it also gives us multiple options because let's say you have a patient who has a high BMI, has a, you know maybe let's say 40, 45, does not want to go through surgery, then you can really combine an endoscopic sleeve with pharmacotherapy to really drive down the weight loss. You can use, so we use a lot of combination therapy and that has really become uh, really quite common both in the overall endoperiatric world. There's reasonable data for that um, and that's become quite common in our practice. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's, just crazy, you know, where we are with that. And as you mentioned, obesity being a problem, we see so many issues with NASH, or I guess they changed the name uh, two days ago. Uh, it's not NAFLD anymore. I think it's MASLD, M-A-S-L-D. They changed the right. Yeah, I, I don't know. A bunch of uh, guys sat in a room in Europe and decided to just change all the name with no more pictures. And, yeah, still NAFLD, oh. but whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, no, I think it's important because where we change the focus not just on the the weight and the BMI itself, but really use these to drive uh, treatment of comorbidities. And so, so it's amazing how uh, the regression of fibrosis, this regression of steatosis, um, and and so I think it, I think these are incredibly effective. Obviously, the wider dissemination uh, will depend on insurance coverage. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a little anecdotal thing is when I did my fellowship, same you know, same time frame as you, um, I had an attending in Memphis, um, and the only really way that we, we didn't have any you know pharmacotherapy outside of the fentermines, and we didn't have surgery, I mean, endoscopic procedures. So this is a gastroenterologist who used to tell all the uh, heavy patients at the VA over there in Tennessee that you need to get on the push diet. And, you know, I, I, the first time I heard it, I looked at it very confused. So I'd never heard of a push diet, you know, it said, you got to put your hands on the table and you got to push away, you know, <laughs> and that was what it was. And now we're getting to the point where we have, you know, great uh, endoscopic procedures and like you said, balloons and, and things. Um, that kind of, another question about that though, is, you know, I did an interview with uh, a common friend of ours, Tofiq, a few weeks ago. And we talked about this kind of new field of endoscopic oncology that that's going up. And the more I've thought about it over the last few months, I feel like, you know, you and I trained in an era where when we did interventional endoscopy, you were an EUS or an ERCP guy or both. And now that we're fast forwarding 12 to 13 years later, you've got third space endoscopy, you've got endoscopic oncology, now you have endobariatrics. Where do you see the future of training for this? Do you see this being, you do your fourth year in interventional or do you see you do parallel tracks or super fellowship on top of it? What, what is your kind of prediction? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think that we need to start thinking now. 
about how to do this. And, and uh, we were involved with a, um, an effort by the American, uh, the um, Association for Bariatric Endoscopy, Abe and the ASG. Right. And we put forth a core curriculum paper. And the way we approach this and what we have proposed, and other societies have done the same, is to really then look at endobariatrics, not as one monolithic um, sort of field, but to really divide um, the procedures uh, based on their degree of complexity. There's going to be less complex procedures, for example, balloon placements, things like that, which any, uh, which, you know, regular gastroenterologists and gastroenterology fellows have the expertise to do, they just have to learn it. What's more important is that it's not just learning the procedure, but learning all the medical aspects of obesity, understanding the behavioral, and so that if they do choose to incorporate obesity into their clinical practice, they have all the elements. Right. We had even proposed that they rotate with bariatric surgeons, with endocrinologists, things like that. Now, when it comes to more complex procedures, such as, let's say, endoscopic sleeves, um, then I think it needs additional training, whether it it really needs a fourth year over and above the fellowship really is dependent on individual sort of circumstances. You know, if there's a program that can train um, fellows in endoscopic suturing in the third year, a lot of uh, programs teach complex endoscopy in the third year. So um, I think it's, it's good to frame it as additional training specific to the procedure to develop competency in that procedure rather than looking at it as a monolithic thing and saying everybody needs to do a fourth-year endobediatric fellowship. So then, you know, you're adding on years to uh, already a long training process. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I agree completely. And I, th I think that's something that also gets lost, um, you know, with trainees is that you come with the mindset that I just need to have, learn how to do a procedure and I'm good. But what we forget, or as a trainee, they forget is that you also need to learn, as you mentioned, the pre and the post management, how to get yourself out of trouble, how to pick the right patients. You know, so that's why when I, I see people who, you know, do, for example, EUS training and they go spend a month abroad and they come back and say, you know, I'm certified. Well, yeah, you have the numbers, but have you done enough time to manage the complications or the work up and deciding who needs a procedure. So same thing with the endobariatrics. I mean, we all know once you get used with the overstitch device or, you know, some of these new products that are going to be coming out over the next few years, um, it's, it's mechanical. It's, you know, you, you know the steps to it, but now it's, you know, the patterns and, and who are the right. It's not just a procedure. These patients are very, these patients need a very specific care and, and, yep. you know, in fact, um, you know, there is the associate, you know, American Board of Obesity Medicine. A lot of gastroenterologists and physicians are training to become board certified in obesity medicine. So um, I think that it's going to evolve. It's going to depend on what new technologies, how we can incorporate. And then, as you likely allude to, there's this whole new field of metabolic endoscopy where we're doing endoscopy to treat diabetes. Right. And there is a lot of exciting. Uh, yeah, developments in that space. That I think would be germane to general gastroenterologists and general gastroenterology fellows, um, because um, the folks who are developing it 
um, are, are really developing it to be applicable to the general gastroenterology skill set. Yeah, no, I, and I, I actually, I mean, to make it even more simple, I mean, I think, you know, our non-invasive colonoscopy or colon polyp detection testing like uh, uh, Cologar are getting better each passing month and, and, and year. And, you know, right now, the bulk of the people in the community are doing most of businesses screening colonoscopy. And in five years, that might not be the case. You know, you may only be doing therapeutic colonoscopy in five years because as the expanded indications for Cologar, you know, they get bigger, then you may not need to do these. But there's a lot more people who are diabetic who need maybe like a fractal type of device or endogenics type of device to treat their diabetes, and not necessarily for the weight loss portion of it, but for the duodenal resurfacing and the remodeling. And that's something that would easily just kind of replace the gap left by less skinny colonoscopy for people. I, mean, I don't know. It's all predictions. It's all yeah. watching, but you're right. I mean, there's so many procedures like balloons are another one that you mentioned earlier that uh, you don't need to have a quote unquote interventional endoscopist do that. I think right now we benefit from it because it's a little bit outside the box of what is considered normal for therapeutic endoscopists or for general gastroenterologists. But I think that box is going to evolve very rapidly over the next five years, you know, so. All right. Well, um, you know, I, I think uh, I've taken up a little bit of your time. So first of all, thank you very much. Um, and, um, you know, uh, anything you, any parting thoughts or anything you wanted to kind of mention before we sign off? No, thank you. This was fun. I think the, what I would say is if folks, you know, thinking about, you know, starting a program, I think there are lots of resources. I think um, almost, you know, everyone in this space um, is is really passionate about this and, and really uh, willing to help and, and foster. So uh, I think that, you know, establish those connections and, and reach out for Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem for the U.S., no pun intended. It's, <laughs> it's um, <laughs> as some sense, I make myself laugh at my own jokes, but uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a very, uh, you know, large problem, and, uh, you know, there's plenty of patients who need this help, and, and there's not enough programs for this kind of thing. So um, for the listening audience, obviously, I, I always end with two kind of uh, pleas or, or uh, recommendations. You know, if you haven't already joined your societies, uh, ASG and uh, ABE are two really good societies for this field specifically. Uh, FIGHT also has an endobariatrics division or a committee as well. That's some place to look at. And then the last thing Rahul, I always kind of sign off by talking about is that a lot of our colleagues struggle with mental health issues. And there's a big stigma for a lot of our physician colleagues to talk about it because there's fear about the, the board or the hospital or anybody finding out. In fact, we all fill out our credentialing paper and it's pretty pretty intrusive what they want to know about our personal lives. And uh, so if you are struggling to reach out, you know, and uh, get help, uh, there's no shame for that. So uh, with that, thank you, everybody. And uh, that was our 10th episode. So thanks, Rahul, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you.